This morning, we're going to be beginning a brand new series called Life Together. And the kind of the engine, the thing that's driving this is just this, uh, we're going to be looking through the book of Philippians. And we have sort of, we as a teaching team, we've talked about what should we do? Where should we go? What should we be talking about? And just this letter has really resonated with us uh, as a community and just kind of thinking through it and, and all that it has to say to us. It's a letter written by a person going through a really frightening season of uncertainty in their life. And he's written this letter to a community that's going through incredible struggles and a season that is frightening and full of uncertainty. So it's incredibly relevant to what we are all walking through right now. The, the letter to the Philippians is written by a man named the Apostle Paul, and he was one of the first Christians. And he's writing this letter while in jail. He's been placed in jail because he is a follower of Jesus and he's traveling all over the Roman Empire proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, which is an incredibly controversial statement and subversive statement to make in that particular time and place in the world. And he finds himself alone and isolated in prison. He's all by himself and he has no idea what the future is going to look like for him. He doesn't know if he's going to be released. He doesn't know what's going to happen to his friends, to the people he cares about. And he doesn't know if he is going to ultimately be put to death. And yet he writes this beautiful letter to this community in the city called Philippi who are going through their own struggles because they're Christians too. And they're experiencing persecution. And that persecution has taken all sorts of different times of forms. For some of them, it's meant the loss of their business. For some of them, it's, it's hit them economically. They're, they're not able to go and sell and buy things. For others, it's cut them off from their families or from their social networks that they used to be so connected to and they used to lean on for support. Still for others, they realize that their personal health and even their lives are at threat. Times are uncertain and they're afraid. And so this letter, it doesn't just focus on all the bad, but instead Paul, he encourages the Philippians to look up and to see God present in their midst. And even though they're separated by, separated by this incredible distance, they are joined together by an incredible hope and an incredible mission that they discover in Jesus. And our hope as we dive into this series is that we'll see even though we are dispersed all over the Halton region and beyond, that, that we would discover that there is a God who unites us a mission that aligns us and a hope that can empower all of us, not just as individuals, but together. So we're going to take our time working through this book. We don't exactly know. We have no end date put in place. We might read through a couple chapters. We'll see how it goes. Uh, maybe we'll push pause, come back to it. We haven't figured it out yet. Uh, but, but our plan, our hope is, is simply to take some time to soak in it, to, to marinate in it and let this letter speak to us and direct us and guide us in this uncertain time in which we all find ourselves. But, but first, I want to talk about introductions. Because introductions are interesting, right? I mean, there's this expression, you've probably heard it, that the problem with first impressions is that you only get one time or one chance to make them. 
I remember the first time I was invited over for dinner to meet my now wife's then girlfriend's family. Uh, my wife's name is Julie and go and meet them for the very first time. I was invited over for birthday dinner. It was my wife's birthday. I was really excited to go and to be a part of it. And beforehand, my wife, my then girlfriend, Julie, she let me know what the menu was. She said, hey, we're going to be having shrimp. Do you like shrimp? And I said, yes, I like shrimp. Now, the truth was is that, yes, I did like shrimp. My experience of shrimp had predominantly been when you go to a party and you have that shrimp ring with those little tiny shrimps on it and you take, the, you take it off the ring, you dip it in the sauce, you bite it, and then you have kind of that little bit of the tail part and you throw that aside. That, that was my experience with shrimp. Uh, and so I go to Julie's family. Uh, I'm excited to be there. I'm meeting her brother, her sisters, her mom, her dad, and it's time for dinner. We go, we sit down at the table, and out on my plate are a whole bunch of these shrimp. But they don't look like the ones that I found in the shrimp ring. They're much bigger. It looked like these shrimp had like had a growth spurt and had been going to the gym every day. Like the, these are way bigger. And so I immediately go, oh, well, I like small shrimp, big shrimp. I'm just going to approach it the exact same way. Now, had I been a little bit more mature, I would have looked around at the table and watched what other people were doing, but I didn't. I was excited. I was nervous, all those different things. I go down, I grab my shrimp, and I pop it into my mouth, take a big bite out of it. It's then that I look around and I see everyone else have not just thrown the shrimp in their mouth. They're actually there, and they're pulling off the shells around the shrimp and then eating it. I immediately realized this as I bite into it, and instead of being the typical experience that one would expect when they bite into shrimp, mine made this loud crunching noise. And so here I am with this mouthful of shrimp and shell, trying to chew it as quietly and inconspicuously as I possibly can. And yet with each bite, it just seems to be getting louder and louder. And Julie says that this isn't true, but seriously, it was. Everyone at the table stopped what they were doing and looked right at me. And so I'm in this place where I'm like, well, what do I do? Do I just spit this out? Do I just swallow it back? And I went, I'm going to swallow it back. This is, this, is, this is where we're going. I'm committing to this. And so I continue to go. And I remember um, finally getting it down with each crunch, just being, it just felt like it reverberated and echoed through the, the entire room. And I remember I finally swallow it back. And Julie's brother looks at me and he says, you know, you can take the shell off, right? And an embarrassment I looked at him and simply said, I like it this way. Because <laughs> uh, I didn't want to be seen as the person who doesn't know what they're doing, right? You want to come across a certain way. You want to present a certain kind of version of who you are. You want people to see you at your best, at your smartest, at your brightest. I mean, how true is that of all the introductions we have? I remember hearing a little while ago someone talk about when you meet someone for the first time, you're not actually meeting them. You're essentially meeting their agent. And what's meant by that is they're saying that you're not really meeting the real version of that person. You're, re you're meeting the version of that person that they want to promote, that they want to sell, that they want to present, the, put their best foot forward. I was talking with a couple people a couple months ago and they had recently signed up for online dating and they were talking about just how stressful the experience of putting their profile 
together was. What do you want people to see is important to you? How do you want to come across? What do you want to seem like you are like? We go through all sorts of energy and effort to present a certain picture of ourselves to others. And ultimately it comes down to, I think we're motivated by this because we think that the perception that other people have of us and the perception that we have of ourselves gives us status. It elevates us. It kind of figure, helps us figure out where we sit in the grand scheme of things. It makes us feel important. It makes us feel better. It makes all those different things. But, but when we get to Paul's letter in the Philippians, there's something strange that happens. Let, let me just read the first two verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've read this over lots and lots of times. I've read through this, and chances are you probably have too. It sounds like just a typical sort of greeting, and one that you would find in most letters from that particular time. But Paul chooses a very interesting way to introduce himself. He, he describes himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. Now, now this resonates, this is significant, not so much for us, but in the Roman Empire and the Gentile audience that would have been reading this letter, that title that Paul gives to himself and Timothy would have stuck out like a sore thumb. Because Paul, the word that we actually get there, we translate it because it sounds nice to call them servants, but the word that Paul uses is the word slave. Now, I want to acknowledge right here and now that that is a loaded word for us, and it was for them too. For us, when we think of the term slave and slavery, automatically pictures of the transatlantic slave trade happening and the, incre the incredible oppression that has happened to the black community in the United States and still in other parts of the world due to and the economic and systemic injustice that has been experienced by the black community as a result of it. And we, so we see it and, and we just go, how? What a terrible, horrible thing. Uh, and still for some of us, we realize that slavery is still a very real reality for many people in the world. In fact, I was just doing a little bit of research and uh, most people estimate that between 21 and 46 million people are slaves still today. And so for us, we want to be very serious that slavery is a terrible, dehumanizing thing. And it was in the Roman world as well. But the reality was, is that for them, this was just the way the world was. You had a high percentage of the population. They were slaves. And if you were to know what it meant to be a slave in the ancient world, it meant that you were essentially at the very bottom of the social strata, status. Uh, a few different writings here. Uh, Sarah Rubin in her book, Paul Among the People, she just simply writes this, talking about the view of slavery. She says this, a slave was nobody and nothing. Uh, Seneca, who was writing a little bit after the time of Jesus, he, he writes this to, uh, for slaves. Are, uh, to be a slave was to live to do the other's bidding without the right to refuse. 
Uh, and Aristotle simply puts it this way, to be a slave is to belong not to oneself, but to another. I mean, slaves in their culture were the lowest of the low. You had no personal rights. You had your, your entire existence, your reason for living was to serve your master. That was all your worth and value. But, but for Paul, he actually wasn't a slave. I mean, he was a citizen of Rome. He was in the, the upper level uh, in terms of what the status is in the Roman Empire. I mean, he had rights and freedoms and privileges that slaves could just would have envied and wanted and desired. Being a citizen was something to, at the very least, brag about. And yet Paul, he introduces himself not as a citizen or not as this huge resume of his accomplishments and great things that he's done. He introduces himself as a slave. I think that uh, Frank Tinneman puts it perfectly in his commentary on Philippians. He says this, Paul is a slave of Christ because Christ's goals are his goals and God's call in his mission and because it is his responsibility to fulfill the command of his master, even when doing so is personally inconvenient. Because for Paul, his life isn't just about him anymore. In fact, his life isn't about him at all. He actually thinks that the most significant, the most important thing about who he, he is, is that his life belongs to Jesus, that, that, that he doesn't belong to himself anymore. His whole view of status about what makes him important or a person not important has been completely turned upside down, turned on its head. I think we're living in a really interesting time. And, and I think one of the things that have been so challenging about COVID-19 and the situation that it's placed on so many of us is that for so many of us, that the things that we view as being most important about ourselves, the things that give us status, those things have been stripped away and removed. Uh, we don't have them there anymore. Some of us, we've lost our jobs. Some of us, we are... Um, not able to connect with the people we want to connect with in the way we want to connect with. For some of us, we've invested in all sorts of things, hobbies, activities, uh, different things that we're doing that we think elevate us in our own sight and in the sight of other people. Uh, and yet, um, right now, we're in a season where we've gotten all those things taken away from us. I remember my sister uh, back about 20 years ago, just after Hurricane Katrina came and, and flooded New Orleans and, and uh, destroyed significant parts of the city, she went on a missions trip with a group of other people. And one of the things they had to do is they went into some of these houses that had just been completely, uh, just the floods had come in and just were filled with water at one point. The water had recited, but they needed to go in and just clear out all of the stuff because the mold and other things that have come through it with all the flooding it now made all of those things a health hazard. And so essentially they were going into people's homes and clearing out all of their stuff and bringing it out and dumping it into dumpsters located on the side of the road. And she tells me about this. I remember her telling me about this one story about this man. And he stood there watching them as they line after line of these students going in wearing full on face covering masks, going into his home 
and he was uh, a collector of army memorabilia. And so his house was just full of all sorts of these things, uh, army memorabilia, war memorabilia. And so they would go in and they'd scoop it up, pick it up, put it into wheelbarrows, bring it out and dump it into the garbage. And this man who'd invested all of his life and he's standing there just saying, I am a collector. I am a collector. I mean, everything that he had built his life on, everything that he'd seen as important in himself, all of the status that he'd seen as being significant about who he was had been stripped away. Now, Paul is in prison. His life is completely uncertain. He is facing dire, a really dire, uh, a dire situation, and he's just trying to get by. But the amazing thing is, is that you read through this, and you realize that his life isn't about himself. So his circumstances do not define his outlook because his life is not about his own success. His life is not about his own accomplishments and his life is not about how he is perceived by other people. His life is defined by in whatever circumstances he's in, is he serving his master? So while he's in, stuck in a jail cell, he is able to rejoice because he sees that as an opportunity to tell and share the incredible message of Jesus with anyone who is within earshot of him. And even as he faces death, he realizes that he in his life, he is embodying a story about a force, about a God who is much more powerful than death itself. And he knows that he can trust Jesus because this is not a master who is simply in it for himself. Just a few verses later in chapter two, Paul writes this. He talks about Jesus. He says this, who, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used in his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant once again, that is the exact same word that Paul uses to describe him and Timothy. It's actually the word slave. By taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness. This is not a master who is proud, who is all in it for himself. This is a master who is modeled and embodied perfect self-giving love. And so for Paul, he goes, that's, that's a master. I will give everything for. That's a master I'm going to serve no matter what in, uh, no matter what challenges it brings my way because in him he discovers a life that is so much better. So often in our culture we talk about trying to find our true selves and, and really what that usually comes down to is what are your wants and desires and it's about living into those things. But, but I would argue that Paul, he doesn't care about finding his true self. He cares about serving Jesus. Or maybe a better way to say it is this, is that we find our true selves as we give ourselves away in faithful service to Jesus Christ. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of how the current situation that we're walking through is impacting your status, how you see yourself and how others see you. May you cast those things aside 
And may you find that the most fulfilling and worthwhile way to live is not in service to yourself, but rather as a slave to Jesus Christ.